Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. I'm sure you guys know that at this point. But uh, not every year, but sometimes we take some time on Father's Day to really focus on the important job of being a dad. And uh, if you are a dad, you know the task is as rewarding as it is challenging. So um, I've been one now. My oldest son just turned 10. I have two girls, uh, one adopted, uh, one biological. And so we've got this really, uh, this really interesting paradigm in our house where I'm kind of like almost at the midlife uh, the shelf life of my of my children. I'm not like a new dad anymore, and I'm not necessarily like one with kids out of the home. I'm kind of like thrust in the middle of the struggle. And so I want to share with you uh, something that happened that really evidences the, the struggle, okay? So if you know anything about my son, he loves the water. Um, unlike me, he does not have a phobia of, of sharks. Uh, I had too much concrete under my feet growing up in New York to, I appreciate the ocean, but I'm also aware that it is an ecosystem. And when I get in it, I am at the bottom of the food chain. And so it petrifies me. I baptize you all in it just because I trust God. That's an act of sovereignty for me. But nonetheless, um, it's not the kind of thing that I, I am regularly going to just jump into. And so my son, is the exact opposite. He was uh, just about two when we moved here from New Orleans, and he loves the water, fishing, surfing, whatever it is. If there's water, he wants to be in it. And so when he was much younger, right around six, he got into all these fishing shows, and we used to watch them all. It didn't matter what it was. If it was a guy or a girl catching a fish, we would record them on our DVR and then watch them. And so one day, we had nothing to watch. I guess we had kind of worn out all of our... uh, our, our fishing curriculum on the television. And I had tuned into a show that we did not ro- watch regularly. It was called The Deadliest Catch, which I'm sure you are very familiar with. Uh, it's a show about these guys that catch crab in Alaska. And uh, earlier that day, key part of the story, my son was complaining that his bottom was hurting. He had heard it while he was playing. And so about midway through the show, I got up to use the restroom. And when I had come back in, uh, my son was standing at the edge of our couch and he had walked up to me and he said, he said, Daddy, um, my butt hurts, right? And so I said, okay, that's great, but um, you need to know that he didn't use the word but. He used the word, uh, I won't share it in this room, but he used the word, the, the synonym for but that starts with the word A uh, and ends in two S's, essentially a curse word. And, um, and it was really kind of shocking to me because, like, you, I guess, expect to see that on a sailing show, but you don't expect to have it happen with your six-year-old in the middle of a living room. And I, I, I had a, a really uh, mixed set of emotions because then automatically he had a beer and he was drinking beer, and I was totally unsure what had happened to him in that 15 minutes that I was, I was outside of the living room. But he became a man and drove a motorcycle away, and he's been gone ever since, right? It's one of those weird things, right? So I, I'm sitting there, and, and truly, I, I am shocked because it's not what you expect. Not the worst thing that can happen, obviously, but I'm shocked to hear my six-year-old say this. And I'm also, on the other hand, trying not to laugh because it is, it is genuinely a little bit humorous. And so I had to kind of figure out what to do. And I did a little thought process and praying, and I just said, okay, so there's got to be a redemptive moment in this, a gospel moment in this. And, and I tried to salvage the moment, and I hope that God did help me to salvage it. But I used it as an opportunity to talk to him about language at that point. It seemed like, at least I feel, the best opportunities for disciple-making, which is a huge priority at our church. It's not necessarily in the classroom, um, although there is a place for that. It happens in the midst of life. So rather than you know doing a whole teaching on this with him, I just tried to use the moment to explain that, uh, that people in life have different perspectives on language. And I let him know that some language belonged in the ocean and not necessarily in our home. Again, not the worst thing, but something to talk about, you know. Uh, so needless to say, we don't watch The Deadliest Catch anymore. We still stick to reruns of Phineas and Ferb because he's still at that age where we can do that in, in harmony and him enjoy it. And so in, in that moment, I really felt that what was needed there was a lot of grace. And I say that because... Uh, That was apparently not the smartest thing I could do at that age. Um, And reflecting on that incident, I also knew that I needed some grace in that situation. And that's another thing that we really value at our church is that we don't we don't claim to be perfect, um, not even in the, the, the remotest sense. But nonetheless, the Christian faith is based on, you know, following Jesus having days where you win and days where you have troubles and trials and failures. And in all those things, whether there is a, uh, a mark in the win or the loss column, however that fleshes out on the daily level, the Christian faith is rooted in God being a God of grace. And so when it comes to fathering, this is the particular point I'm trying to make, and I guess I'm putting myself on the chopping block here. When it comes to fathering, uh, God does not expect us as men to be perfect. I mean, clearly not. The only person who was ever perfect is Jesus. And there was a great rest that we can take in knowing that, that our Father in heaven is the perfect picture of, of fatherhood. And because he is perfect and Jesus is in us, we don't have to rest or, or really be freaked out or stressed under the pressure of trying to be something we can never be. 
However, um, God does expect that as men, we strive to be men who raise our kids in a way that honor God. And so the point of this, I really believe, is that we are going to err and make a lot of mistakes. But when we make them, it is God's ultimate desire that we see and experience his grace and learn from them. So it's not that we have to be perfect out of the gate. It's just that we have to have a, a dynamic, grace-filled relationship with Jesus where we are letting him be our father. Where in the same way we are trying to raise our children in a way that, that reflects and honors God's glory in the son, we have the same relationship with God as he shows us those same relational rhythms. And so fathering, I guess to summarize where we're going to go today, fathering is a constant exercise in growing in God's grace, much like mothering. So this exercise is what I'd like to talk about today. And we're going to look at um, very loosely, but nonetheless, the, the point of this in John 17, 1 through 5, is that there's this amazing excerpt, right? Uh, this amazing example of a conversation between a father and a son, between God the Father and Jesus his son. And it's the beginning of this prayer that Jesus offers to his heavenly father. And we've looked at multiple facets of this prayer over the years. But the one I want to look at today is that it gives us some incredibly keen insights in how Jesus understood his father in heaven. And the responsibilities now that we have, if we are following Jesus, to, to essentially perpetuate those same rhythms if we have kids in our families, or if you are an aspiring father, or you are a father with kids out of the home, no matter where you are, these are rhythms that are essential to healthy fathering. And so what we see here is that the way that, that Jesus speaks to his father gives, gives us some incredible, some keen insights into what a good father is and does. And that's incredibly important, because being in the Christian faith always precedes doing. This has been the problem of Christianity in America for a very long time, is we've, we've kind of reversed that. We've made doing the ultimate work of what a Christian is. And the truth is, is that's very important. What we do is incredibly important in the Christian faith. But we will only do for God in the long term. Being able to endure suffering and trial and success and failure. We'll only be able to do for God effectively when we understand who we are in him permanently. That is what precedes. The being always precedes the doing. And so because of that, that's the way we're going to look at this talk this morning. We're going to look at what it means to be a, a God-honoring father first. We start with the fact that we can be this because God already is this. To reverse that is a problem. God-honoring fatherhood is where we will begin. And then we'll take some of the ideas that we see in Jesus' prayer and, then, and translate into our lives how Jesus understood who his father was to him and how we can then marry that to, to who we are, to the people that God has given us this privilege of father to. And so this leads me to the first truth I want to share with you today. The precursor is no deadliest catch with your kids. But once we move past that, we move into a pretty profound truth. Fatherhood as we know it on earth, it finds its origin in our eternal heavenly father. And I just want to read John 17, 1 through 2 to you again, or at least a portion of it. After Jesus said this, again, remember, he's going to the cross. So he is in a time of need. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, Father, keyword, the hour has come. And the hour is obviously a, a cryptic code, if you will, all throughout the Gospel of John for the fact that Jesus is going to die for us. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Now, why do I bring this up? Because before we begin talking about the positives of fatherhood, it is well worth recognizing that not everybody on earth has had a positive experience with this word or this, this person. So this truth is important to know because some people have had entirely unhealthy interactions with earthly fatherhood. And that's why holidays like this, most of, the, most of the holidays in our culture where we celebrate something meaningful, there's always two sides to the celebration zone. They're always met with mixed emotions, largely defined by the kind of a, of a home that a person grew up in. And so just saying the word father in a group this size, in an audience this diverse, it's likely going to conjure up a slew of mental and emotional images, which have been significantly shaped by the nature of who our earthly fathers are. So for example, some of us as men in this room, when we hear the word father, we think, yes, that is a guy that I tried to pattern my life after. Not perfect, but I am thankful for my father. And I've done my best to take what he's given me and to be that. He was not perfect, but, but man, I'm thankful for my dad. Others might be in this room or you have people in your lives who when we say the, the word father, there's like an empty zone in their head because they didn't really have one. Biologically, sure, they had one. But emotionally, spiritually, they weren't there. Maybe they were in the home but didn't care. Or maybe they just weren't there at all. Who knows? But the truth is that this spectrum exists. And the same is true with our daughters. 
Some girls grow up thinking, I'd like to marry a man like my dad. He was trustworthy and caring and honest and sacrificial. And they, they have an image in their mind that is positive. While others grew up under some abusive form of fatherhood. And as a result, they have this, this constant resentment of masculinity of any sort. Like, I mean, r- rightly so, because they have been abused in one of the most important masculine relationships they have in their life. And so the word father, not only can it be a loaded term, for some people it just is going to be a loaded term. To properly understand it, we must turn to the purest example we have of it in God. In other words, we've got to try to lay aside our presuppositions for a few moments and go back to the origin of fatherhood. There's the way God wants it to be, and then there's the way that it often is, and it's in perfect forms on earth. And so if you've spent any time studying the New Testament, you know that something astounding happens between us and God because of Jesus. All throughout the Bible, God's people have referred to him with with different relational terms. I mean, the list is lengthy of how God's people in the Old Testament, his covenant people, referred to God. Provider, you know, author of the faith. There's a myriad of terms that, that to a a true degree, they explain what God's nature is and who who he is by his character. So all of these amazing terms that, that highlight who God is and how he is our ultimate father. But none is as rich, as far as I'm concerned, as the new term we are given in the New Testament. A very powerful term. Where when Jesus in Matthew, we won't look at it today, I'll paraphrase it. But when he gives us the Lord's Prayer, which is like the archetype for how we are to approach God for, for life in our prayer. It becomes a structure, if you will, that we pray to God on a regular basis. A liturgy, if you will. It's in that place that he changes the game entirely. And he says, listen, when you approach God, approach him possessively. Call him your father. Call him our father. Call him my father. The literal term there is our father, but buried in that is this idea that he is our father, he is your father, he is my father. He is now a god of a people called Christians, and he, he, we are his children. Now, I want you to think about this. Jesus is God, and God is God. And when Jesus gives us the roadmap for talking to God and how we approach him, he doesn't say, begin by calling him the supreme lord of the universe. He doesn't begin by saying, approach him as the sovereign and almighty of all creation. He is all of these things, obviously, right? He doesn't say, call him the king. What he says is, when you, in your hour of need, call out to your God, you call him by his name, the the name he wants to be known by. You call him your father. You call him your daddy, literally, that can be translated that way in the Aramaic. He is your father. And it's pretty amazing when you actually begin to think about that, that Jesus says the basis of our relationship with God is not based on a lofty spiritual exclusivity with a pretentious God, but rather this unreal level of relational familiarity and accessibility with your, with your father in heaven. It's not that God is acting as if he is above us, although he totally is. Passages like the Lord's Prayer and the others that talk about God as our Father are trying to help us see the heart of our Father in heaven, the way that he wants to father us. They want us to see that the fatherly love that God has for his only son, which is astounding, right? It has now been extended to those who love Christ. So to pursue Jesus, to to know the Father through Jesus means you're, you're now a son or a daughter of the kingdom of God. You now have the same right to call God your Father in heaven. And connected to that are some pretty astounding privileges. It means that God values your life in the same way that he does his only son. So if you come in here with, with insecurity issues today or emotional challenges, you had a hard time packing the car with your kids and it's been a rough morning, you need to know that God loves you like he loves his son. He loves you with, the, with an incredible and magnificent love in the same way that he loves his son. And this is an amazing statement. It is one that becomes par for the, cro- the course in the, vi- the Christian vernacular. We say these things almost as if like they are, they are trite. And I know we don't mean them that way, but when we say God loves us, my gosh, the depth of that statement is profound. And it does us well in moments like this and talks like these to re-engage our hearts with the significance of what it means to say that God loves us. This is an amazing somewhat radical and even controversial statement by by many of the faiths that exist exist in our world. Certainly for those not believing, this is a ludicrous statement that there even is a God who would care for us like this. And if you begin to compare Christianity to the other major world religions, what you'll find is that this is a some it's not somewhat, it is straight up controversial. And I give you a good example of this. Um, years ago, you guys know I, I read a lot of people, and there are a handful that have really shaped, at least that are still alive, my modern ministry over these past 20 years. And one of them uh, is, a, is a gentleman named Tim Keller, who pastors a very healthy uh, Presbyterian church in New York City. 
And uh, he was giving a, a talk one time on the nature of fatherhood in Christianity. And what was interesting is that he was invited, very healthy situation, but he was invited to have this conversation in a local mosque about the theology of God with another congregation of people um, who, who were Muslim. Healthy, a, a friendly dynamic here, nothing like controversial or argumentative. And so the foundation of his talk was built on sharing with this group of people the distinction between God the Father and the Christian faith and how they viewed God. And so in this, he, he's essentially giving a talk on what we're talking about now. And in the talk, he points out that this, this same relational truth we're talking about this morning, God as Father, is perhaps one of the primary differences between Christianity and the other world religions that, that ascribe to some kind of a deity like God in our faith. And the main difference is that um, after making this statement, when we say God is Father, for those of you with a Christian pedigree, you say, yes, I'd like to grow in that and understand it. But you're not adversarial to that idea anymore. God is Father, right? But that's not the way that it is in a lot of our other faiths. And so the audience was a bit shocked that, that, uh, that he said this and that Jesus not only said this, that was already a little bit out of sorts, but that Jesus gave you and I. It's one thing to like in the Christian faith to give the Son of God the permission to call God Father. But in our faith, the Son of God gives us permission to call his Father, Father. And that was just absurd. That you and I, in our state of you know, redeemed fallenness, would be able to approach God in this way. And so afterwards, um, when the Islamic theologian got up to talk, he rebutted this and said, listen, this just doesn't make sense to us because in our faith, no person can or should ever call God Father. It is a heresy. And he went on to say that nobody has the right to do this because nobody is worthy enough to approach God that intimately. Now, that's a very true statement, even in the Christian faith. But this was taken a, a step further when he pointed out that, that for regular old common people like you and me, it is audacious for us to approach God as that and call him Father. And I would say in this point we agree. It is absolutely audacious to think that you and I can approach God this way. But this is one of the most amazing aspects of Christianity. And it's why we need to re-engage ourselves with this word Father. Jesus himself not only says we can, but he says you should call God your Father. This is a place where God is going to now separate himself. And he says, listen, the, the point, right, of these Our Father passages in the Bible, they are to reveal to us the exceptional relationship that Jesus has with his Father. He looks up to him. As God, he looks up to him. He loves him. He seeks counsel from him. He finds his refuge, his strength, and his comfort in him. When the masses demand from him, he needs time away from them to be with his Father in heaven. He trusts him. And consequently, because of who he is, because of the relationship, the being, if you will, there is something that happens rather naturally for him. Obedience and faithfulness. This is why I say it is not enough for us to just try to do stuff for God. At some point, if we are disconnected from our identity in him as father, we will not have the spiritual muscle to sustain that. The doing and the obedience falls by the wayside because we are disconnected from the root of the love that God has for us. And so what's so wonderful about this teaching is that God says, listen, the blessing and the benefits that I have given my son, I offer them to you now if you will just put your life in my son's hand. The, the blessing is passed on. And so I personally think that deserved like maybe one amen. Maybe it's raining outside and you're like, I grew up Baptist and I don't do that. I don't know, but like something, are you alive out there? Okay, like you are a son or daughter of God. Like, I don't know. I could rap. Maybe that'll get you more excited. All right. <clears throat> uh, no. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> uh, small story. I was in a rap group when I was in the 10th grade. That'll be an illustration for another day. All right. So Scripture's clear here. When we believe in the Father, right, by embracing his Son, we are made sons and daughters of God. In fact, the first song that was sung this morning was by a band called All Sons and Daughters. And uh, the truth is that that's one of the realities of who we are. And when we embrace this reality, we get to experience the love of the Father in the very same way that, that, that Jesus did. And so what this means is, before we move into this next idea, I want you to hear this. What this means when we say that God is Father and Jesus tells us to call God Father is that God loves you like he does Jesus. And if you have come into this place with a skewed uh, or unhealthy understanding of fatherhood, or you've come in here with a healthy understanding, but maybe, maybe you just feel like you can't live up to your own dad. Whatever it is, no matter where you are on the physical, spiritual, and emotional spectrum, you need to know that you do not have to, you do not have to stress yourself about being something you can never be. We cannot be perfect fathers, or in that case, mothers, right? But we can 
rest in the perfection of who Jesus is and then, and then really thrive as fathers because he's already paved that path for us. We press into a reality he's already created for us as opposed to trying to fabricate one we cannot do on our own. And all you need to do for this, at least the beginning of it, is to start experiencing what it means to be a son of God by, by letting the grace of Jesus penetrate your heart. Whether that means believing for the first time today or believing more deeply a truth that you have long forgot. Because in this relationship, this grace-based relationship we have with Jesus and in exploring the relationship that God the Father has with him, you'll find every heart attitude and action necessary to be a man and a father who honors God by living in the image of God. That's where the strength of this comes in. Our identity proceeds are doing. So in the first half of this sermon, we have, we have, we've talked about, a little bit anyways, what God-honoring fatherhood is. And we have identified that that stems from the nature of who God is. So for the remainder of our time, I want to use John 17 as a bit of a case study to point out how Jesus sought the care of his father during a very challenging time in his life as he prepared to go to the cross. And so these are essentially John 17 for you theologues out there. You know, these this is the end of Jesus's teaching, like where he's going here. These are like his final words on earth before he goes to be with his father, the cross and, and uh, you know, the resurrection and we celebrate all around Easter. And I love that if you think about this, his last words on earth, he desires to, to share them with his father. You can see the love that he has here, the mutual love. So this is why one of the best examples we have in the Bible of a father and son interacting is right here. And somewhat ironically, this is kind of a one-way conversation. If you read all of John 17, uh, Jesus, uh, God is not like splitting the heavens or making mountains move. He is essentially in a posture of listening. But what we see here is that even though God doesn't say anything to Jesus here... We can learn a great deal about how Jesus understands who his father is by what he says. This is true in our own lives. When we pray to God to provide and he does not, or at least we feel like he has not, or he does it in ways that we think are different. The mental image we have of the way God is going to work is different. The fact that we are at a place where we trust God for provision says something. It says that we've begun to orient our hearts around a character trait of who God is. Or when we pray for mercy... Right? It means that we now trust God to provide it. This is what's happening here. The things that Jesus goes to his Father for, he goes to them because he has a confidence and trust in his Father. And this leads me to the second truth I want to share with you this morning. It is a confidence that we can have in our own lives as we approach God, and it is a confidence we should have as we raise our children in a way that seeks to honor God. Here's where we're going with this. Jesus' prayer to his father shows us there are three marks of what a father after God's own heart looks like. They're not the only ones, but these are pretty significant. And you'll probably find that a lot of fathering stems from them. In John 17, 3, important verse. I want to read it. Jesus says this. He says, now this is eternal life. And contrary to a lot of our modern Christian teaching, eternal life is certainly permanency with God in heaven, right? That's perma- that, that is eternal life. We, we had sometimes in the modern Christian world, we tend to jump over like the roughly 80 years we get on this planet. And we begin to immediately look towards what we call an eschatological end, the future hope of what it's going to be like when we are no longer on this earth and we are with Jesus permanently. But the truth is that we've got about 80 years to figure out how to be happy and joyful on this earth. And so passages like this show us that God is concerned with what happens when we leave this world he is as concerned as our vitality and joy, just the, Philipp- thus the Philippian series we're in, taking a little break from it today. He's as concerned with our joy and the posture of our heart on this earth right now. And so he doesn't say, now this is eternal life, that at 85 you get to go be with me away from the world. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What we see is that eternal life, a synonym for heaven, what Jesus says is eternal life is actually rooted in your intimate love and knowledge of God. You want heaven on earth? That's how you get it. And so the foundation that made Jesus' relationship with his father so exemplary is that he really knew his father. The, the, this whole like tongue twister of that they may know me and me, you, and all of this is saying like the robust nature of life and fatherhood is based in relational intimacy. And in a sense, this prayer exchange is a concentrated dose. It's like Jesus pulled the curtain back for a little bit for us. It's a concentrated dose of what the relationship between Jesus and his father looked like in every day of life. This is not a one-time event. He is going to God in ways recorded in Scripture. And we know that not everything Jesus did was recorded in Scripture. So it's fair to say this is a rhythm that he practiced on a regular basis. So in the conversation, he makes this direct connection, Jesus does, between experiencing God's fatherhood and how deeply you know God. 
You don't just get God the Father without the knowledge of who God is. And this is why when Jesus prays that we would experience eternal life, he defines it by knowledge or the knowing of who God is as Father. And if you've been with us at Restoration for some time, there are whole sermons dedicated to this idea of what knowing means in the Scripture. And I just am going to take a minute to refresh on this, us on this because it's important. Uh, knowing is always, whenever we see that word knowing in the Bible, it, is, it includes, but it is much deeper than just a cognitive exercise. We can know God as Father here. But it is very different when we begin to experience that in, the, in a different sector of our lives, in the emotional, relational, and, uh, and spiritual seat of our lives, our heart, right? So knowing God is not just about storing up information. It's about understanding that information in, in a personal and intimate way. It's about the Holy Spirit taking the fact and making it real and evident in our lives. That's the whole teaching on joy, right? Joy, since we, we're taking a little bit of a break from Philippians, we've talked about how joy is an unassailable trait God puts in you. When you have Jesus, you have joy. So when we are without joy, it is because we are blocking the dam of it up in our lives. We have to press into this reality. Knowing that joy exists is much different than experiencing joy. The same is true here with fatherhood. And in this chapter, the way Jesus speaks to his father shows us that he knows and has come to depend on three very important traits of his father's life. This is how we'll kind of segue into conclusion this morning. These traits show us that a father after God's own heart, what that looks like. And I want to spend just a few minutes looking at each of them. If you've come here seeking practical, relational um, uh, tools for fatherhood, or in that sense, any relationship. I mean, this is certainly pointed at fatherhood, but the way we care for other people, uh, the way we care for our children, our wives, our families, our friends, those we minister to in our community groups, those outside the faith whom God has called us to bless. These are certainly relational principles that, that they apply to anything, but they are very pointed in, in fatherhood. And that's where I want to kind of focus on this morning. So first, a father after God's own heart strives to be a, a holy example for his children. This is kind of the root of why God is who God is. And although we didn't read this verse today, if you continue to read John 17, in verse 11, Jesus refers to God as his holy father. And in many ways, we can rightly identify this as the foundational trait of a father that will define every other trait in a father's life. And I love, again, this is an identity, holiness, which we'll talk about in a minute. It's not even, it becomes something you do, but holiness is an identity that Jesus imputes into you. Right? So I love that when Jesus approaches his, approaches his father here, and certainly everywhere else in the Bible, he does it with a completely assumed understanding of who God is. He's not ever wondering what's going on with God. He goes to God confidently, and his words show us that. There is never any question, that, uh, in our minds anyways, as far as who Jesus is in Scripture, there's never any question about who Jesus believes he's talking to. He calls him Holy Father because he has a character and a reputation that precedes him. There is, a, there is so much trust because they have always been with each other that when Jesus goes to God and says, Father, whatever the blank is on the end of that, he is confident that God can and is able to be what he needs to be for him in that moment. And so, again, if you've been with us at Restoration, you know we place a great deal of emphasis on properly understanding what Scripture means when it refers to someone being holy. Uh, holiness in the modern Christian world has largely been relegated to us doing something that makes us better than other people. Holiness, in other words, is like, I'm more moral than you, and that's what God loves. But when you read the prodigal son, uh, you realize that that's a problem because there was a person there who did everything right, the younger brother. He did everything right. He had all the morality that God says we should have in our lives, but he had no love and affection for God, and therefore there was a problem. It was a hollow form of relationship. And so holiness is not defined by what you do. Holiness is defined by the, the literal word for this, or definition, is that uh, holiness is when God sets apart and consecrates something for his exclusive service. So in the Old Testament, when, when a, a, a cup becomes holy to God, it's not that the cup was faithful to its wife. It didn't have one. The cup was exclusively exclusively dedicated for the service of God, set apart for use for him. And the same principle applies to those of us in bodily form, whether it is sainthood or holiness. The idea of holiness is that that cannot be earned. Holiness means God has put the grace of Jesus in your life. And because of that, you can now begin to become, uh, pressed into the image of who God is. So what you do is, again, shaped by who you are in Jesus. You have been made holy because God is holy and has redeemed you and me. 
To think we're holy apart from that creates a bunch of problems like legalism and moralism and all the other isms. And what happens is, is we then have uh, the issue of the older brother in the prodigal son uh, uh, who, uh, excuse me, I got my terms mixed up earlier. The, uh, the younger brother is the, is the wayward one. The older brother is the guy who thinks that God loves him because of how great he is. And what happens there is he's not great at all. He is he is more hollow in his relationship than the younger brother because the younger brother at some point recognizes his bankruptcy and he says, I realize this is a sham. I'm tricking myself. That's what happens here if we get holiness misaligned. So the short definition of holiness in the Christian faith is when something or in the case of fatherhood, someone has been set apart by God's grace for service to God. And one of the great fruits of holiness, right, is heart deep life change. This is one of the evidences that we are holy, made holy by Jesus. It means that when, when Jesus makes us holy through redemption and grace, over time our lives begin to change. They begin to be transformed into the image of God. We, as we said in Philippians, we begin to know the mind of God and the heart of God. And we start to reflect from here to here the nature and the character of God. And so when God's holiness is working in our lives, it develops us into people who can be followed because we begin to take on a morality and a trustworthiness and a dependability and a reliability that reflects our Father in heaven. The reason Jesus regularly seeks his Father is because he knows what he's going to get from his Father. Now, God's holiness means this. Here's where the rubber meets the road for us as men. It means that his character never changes. It is stable and it is consistent. His judgment, his counsel, his words, his actions, his wisdom, they are not affected by the shifting sands or the winds of the world. He is not persuaded by the thoughts of men. He is who he is. One of his identities, I am simply because I am. The only thing you define me by, he says, is me. I am who I am because he is God. And to a certain degree, in very broken and imperfect ways, earthly fatherhood is supposed to have some of the same characteristics and traits. I'm not saying you need to be perfect like God. I hope I've qualified that enough. But what I am saying is that over the course of our lives, as men and fathers, it should be our desire that as people look at us, that we are defined by love. Not perfectly, but defined by love. That people see us as caring, peaceful, hopeful, trustworthy. That we are able to forgive as we have been forgiven. That we are reliable. That we are dependable. That we are men who both nurture and protect as God does. Not with some false form of you know, chauvinism or male bravado, but that we actually embody the characteristics of who God is. Because he has given us the ability to do so because of who he is. This is how it is with our Father in heaven. There is an incredible beauty and hope in God's holiness that inspires peace and confidence in the heart of his children. I've been meditating this week on Psalm 34.4, which essentially says, like, I have been afraid, but I have sought you, God, and you have dealt with my fears. Why can we pray to God when we have troubles in our hearts or trials, when fear seeks to rob us? Why can we do that? Because we know that God is a God who does not put fear in us. In us, he puts the authority and the power to shake off fear and timidity, as Paul says. Who God is dictates directly who we become. And that's why I say there is a beauty and hope in this. And as earthly fathers, we have got to strive for holiness in the same way. Because in doing so, we exponentially increase our ability to raise godly children. In imperfect ways, we are properly reflecting the stable love of God for them. And even in our failure, which as men, I can tell you that I have, uh, they're a legion. There are tons of them in our lives, right? Even when we fail, our children observe how we need grace from God. And that gives them a tool to deal with hardship and failure when it comes to them. So we, on the good and the negative side of the coin, when we see God as Father, then what happens is we set up for our children and those in our lives who God has given us to, to bring to Jesus. We set up a, a, an expression that actually creates a love and a health and a vitality, a, a desire to inquire, no pun intended, about who God is. And so this morning, I ask you a question. To every person in this room, especially our current and aspiring fathers, are you the type of man, the type of person your kids can look up to? And if they do look up to you, are they seeing Jesus? Are your emotions, your spirituality, your morality revealing the holiness of God, the Father, in you? Or are they revealing something else? It's a good diagnostic question to wrestle with during the week. 
The second mark of a father after God's own heart strives to be intimate with his children. So not only is God holy, meaning he's like completely beyond us in every way. But what I find interesting with this, when you look at Jesus's prayer and the things he tells us about how we approach God, um, and there's some very deep theology behind this, is in one sense, uh, God says, I am utterly unknowable to you all. I am beyond what you can know. But then in the same breath, he says, but I am also utterly available and intimate to you. I am the God of the universe who is also present in your life because of Jesus. Right. So a a father after God's own heart is concerned with holiness, but also strives to be intimate with his children. Otherwise, we represent imbalanced understandings of who God is. One is hard and rigid. The other is intimate without without growth or progress. And so this mark of fatherhood, perhaps more than any other we'll look at today, is kind of a sticky one. Because we live in a culture that, um, that is oftentimes, this is the one I grew up in, and I've made, uh, I've made a lot of jokes about this in the past, but they are serious. Um, I grew up in, an, in kind of an old school um, Italian-American household where, like, my dad was, I have a great father, I love him, um, and he would agree with everything I'm saying today. I'm saying that confidently because he's not in here. He might disagree. But he's, like, stubborn and hard-nosed. And so in, in that world, it was like what Pa said is what happened, like what dad said went. And so everybody oriented around the... The, the reality of his authority. And that was very common, especially if you look at older Western European models. That's just, that's the way people were raised. And there were, there were lots of challenges with that. So that's what I grew up in. And what happened in a culture like that is that intimacy, I don't necessarily mean, you know, like lighting candles over wicker baskets or something. That can be an element of intimacy. But the ability to deeply connect with a, a human on a relational and emotional level, um, that's often pitted against that kind of authority. So manliness in the traditional sense and intimacy like this, they don't go together. And in certain circles, um, being intimate is even considered a marker weakness. I, I told you guys uh, last year about that, that guy that I grew up with in my neighborhood in Brooklyn named Benny. And Benny, for five bucks, if you lit firecrackers in his hand, he would light a pack of firecrackers in his hand. That's what he did. And all of us wanted to grow up to be like him. We like, if we could be tough men, if we could light firecrackers in our hands, that's, that's what we thought was awesome. And that will not get you a college scholarship. So hear me with that, right? That's what all my friends were thinking. So as a result, I mean, just being very honest, um, I grew up in a household that was deficient in that area, incredibly strong in other areas, hard work and responsibility and reliability. Those are things my dad beat into my head, and I'm utterly thankful for them. But in the same way, my children will grow and highlight what I could have done better. This is one of the areas that that became something I had to work on. And so this is something that is, is very important to me. Because in certain circles, and, and hopefully this is not in our homes, being intimate can be considered a mark of weakness. And this cultural spirit of the age has caused some families to draw a very unhealthy dichotomy between how intimacy is handled with our children, our wives, our spouses, friends, family. And it goes something like this. You know, dad handles like the discipline and the spanking of the butt and going off to work while mom handles the needs of the heart. That's what would happen. My dad would essentially contract out to my mom when, when she had to deal with something that went far beyond rigid discipline or correction. And so parenting to a certain degree was split down the middle in environments like that. And this creates a significant problem in the life of a child because we've already said that uh, children will largely understand what a man is and what to look for in a man based on the type of father they have. And so if you were raised in a dynamic like this or in a dynamic like this now, it is very likely that being intimate, having open and meaningful conversation with your kids or your spouse is just more challenging for you. And that's okay. This is a place where, again, we resort to the grace of God, who is all intimacy, and we press into him for correction here. But nonetheless, it can be uncomfortable. Then the person who was raised in a family um, where dad naturally fathered the whole of the child, not just segments of them like guiding emotions, or in the Christian world, I did not have a Christian upbringing, but developing the faith, right? Speaking about the intimacy of God in our lives to our children, like speaking to their heart in the times of need. Responsibilities like this in recent years have been largely contracted out. And so uh, I'll give you uh, a couple of clear examples of this. If you read any church growth books, what they'll tell you is, uh, and I think this is kind of an unfortunate reality, but uh, long ago, uh, the American church realized that the way to reach a family for Jesus uh, typically comes through mom, uh, because matters of faith and intimacy, not always, but they tend predominantly um, to be far less of a concern for a father than they are a mother. And this still uh, holds true today. Uh, We have an, an incredible amount of godly and mature men at our church. But if I were to run this down the ringer, uh, like give you a column, you would see that there's a robust involvement of women too. Strong, probably even stronger than the men. And this is kind of almost a guarantee in most areas. And we want to change this. 
So while the in, in a paradigm like this, right, while the traditional like suck it up and shake it off philosophy that some of us were raised under as children, um, that does have a place in times in our lives. There are times where you just got to get up and press on the perseverance of the saints. Um, the truth is that with our kids, that more easily works when your nine year old sprains an ankle on a basketball court. Um, it seldom, if ever, works when they're 16 and they face the cruel words of another teen in school. You can't just say suck that up and shake it off. Because it starts to attack the very identity of who they are. And unless you can help build that bridge between who God says they are and what other people say they are, then what happens is you start to create true insecurity that can become long-term problems. The older they get, the older we get, the harder life's trials become to just shake off. And frankly, we have all been in situations, maybe some of us even right now, where shaking it off was not even a possibility. It was like a yoke on our neck that, that ran the high possibility of, of ruining us. And so as fathers, we have a, a God-given responsibility to shape our kids, their, their, the whole of their lives, their hearts and their minds, to deal with all the matters of life. And the hard truth here is if we don't, this is the takeaway for, for number two, intimacy. The hard truth here is that if we do not own this, then we'll be faced with the inevitable reality that our children will go to someone or something else to learn how to deal with those issues. People need this. God has made us this way. So if we really drop the ball on this, what happens is they will find intimacy in other places and possibly places that, that do not honor God or maybe are even detrimental to their lives. So contrary to popular belief, at least in the world that I grew up in, raising kids without intimacy does not make a kid tough. It tends to make them hard. And those are two entirely different heart postures. Tough is the ability to deal. Hard is like you are just a... A, you're a steel wall and nothing can penetrate your heart because you are jaded and angry. That is not what God wants to reproduce. And so we have to do our best to avoid reproducing that in our homes. And that stems directly from how we know God as Father. Now, on the contrary, the conversations Jesus has with his Father, they show us there's a direct connection between fatherhood and relational intimacy. And Jesus regularly goes to his Father um, not for, not you know, I, I kind of in a colloquial way say this, not for advice alone about how to keep a job or throw a football. but And those things are wonderful, whatever ways we raise our, our kids that way. Um, but he turns to him also for encouragement and to deal with the supreme challenges of life. He goes to him when it is really rough and when it is really good. There is a relational intimacy there. And so this morning, much like the first mark of a healthy father, I ask everyone in this room, no matter where you are in life, but especially if you are a current or aspiring father, are you the type of man, the type of person that your kids can turn to, that people can turn to? They know that they can, they can be cared for by you. And when they do turn to you, do they see Jesus? Is their intimacy with you revealing the kind of intimacy God wants to have with them? Or are they seeing something else? Our goal is obvious to say, in broken ways, they see the intimacy of, of my relationship with my Father in heaven. So God is holy. God wants to be intimate with us. Two translation factors for our children. The last one, how we'll close this morning. I'll be brief here, but I'll just say this. This is, um, this is the bridge that creates an emotional reality between the two things we just spoke about. Uh, a father after God's own heart strives to be available for his children. Now, this might seem kind of obvious because um, I've said this, especially when we've talked about marriage here, that you, you have to be in a relationship. Part of, part of a relationship is quality and, and quantity of time. Um, you can't have a relationship with somebody that, that doesn't have true relational qualities, which is why um, you likely all have 1,100 friends of, on Facebook, and like three of them you could probably borrow $10 from in a pinch. There's a different relational connection there, right? Some of them, I love it. They're like, hey, be friends, and then you become friends, and you're like, hey, how are you doing? And then they unfollow you, and you're like, did you just ask me to be friends? Like, different type of construct for relationship, right? So when I say availability, again, we have to return to the kind of availability that we see with God the Father here. Not just, I'm not saying all friendships on Facebook are trivial, but I am saying it's a bridge to something potentially more meaningful, right? And this, I actually shared this four Father's Days ago with you, but I want to share it again. This, uh, this became very clear to me on an NPR radio broadcast I had listened to that was talking about the evolution of fatherhood in our modern culture. So this is a reality that they're seeing now in the last four to five years, all right? So essentially, the broadcast had a panel of people talking about the challenges of fatherhood in our culture. And one of the byproducts of this was our culture's increasing acceptance of single mothers raising kids, in large part because they saw an uptick 
uh, and sometimes in some places kind of common uh, to the increased negligence of dads who aren't taking care of their kids. So in one sense, single motherhood becomes a reality because you have places where fathers, for whatever reasons, are not owning up to their responsibilities. And they highlighted two, this was profound for me, they highlighted two types of unavailable fathers. Uh, the first, and we won't spend much any time on this today, is because this is likely not the story of any of you in this room that are in Jesus, is what they called um, the deadbeat dad. And the deadbeat dad was essentially like the guy who just was not around at all, ever. Right? Um, the other one is probably the one that will be more likely. It's how we, how we are as people when we want to be good dads, but we're trying to learn. And this is what they called the, the paycheck dad or the provision dad. And so these are men who actually are around. They are present in their homes. And uh, they, they just have a very nuanced understanding of fatherhood. They simply see it as something like the primary job is to, to conveniently, rather conveniently, just put a roof over their kid's head and food on the table. And uh, before we go any further than this, I want to say this. Um, there are some fathers today in our world that don't even provide that. And so I am not knocking this. There is an incredible amount of God-honoring nobility in this. Um, it's just that a father cannot only see fatherhood as this single-sided responsibility um, to provide. Provision has, there's a role for it in the whole of the family. But for a dad to just think, hey, I'm going to go to work and that's it, that's, that becomes a problem. It starts to rob our families and children from those other dynamics we just spoke about. So this was the perhaps the main point of the broadcast that it was making. What it was saying is that there were some young men as children who grew up in homes like this. And they made the decision when they became fathers that they were going to be widely available to their kids. They were going to start pressing into those areas they did not have. While others just said, that's just too much work. And you can also see an uptick in, in families that don't want to have kids at all. And so what happens here is the demand, there, there was a, a, a negative recognition of what that required. And because of that, it just is, if you have kids, you know it is just easier to not have them. Um, but I love my children and would not trade them, except on Wednesday mornings. Every Wednesday, I want to get rid of them all. I don't know what's, what it is about that day. But you know the tension there. Like, it's hard, but you would just you just love them in ways that that are immeasurable by words. And so much like holiness and intimacy, we see that God assumes a posture of total availability with his son and one with us. Like God is never off the hook or off the phone. He is always present for us through his word, through our prayer, and certainly through his people, the, the, the holy trinity of Christian maturity, God in his word, praying to God, and, do, and living life in community with other Christians on mission. So this is why all throughout Jesus's life, his father is the first person he turns to. And there's something to learn from this. Whether he's rejoicing or facing a trial in life, we can safely assume he does this because he knows his father is always available to him when he needs him. Because the Bible says God is the kind of father that is always available for his children. And for those of us in Jesus, we are his children. And so that means the same availability is presented to us. And even though God is the author of provision, he is a provider, right? He takes care of us protects us. The Bible is clear. He provides us with much more than just physical sustenance. He also provides us with spiritual support and wisdom and emotional support. And so this morning, I want to ask you this question, everybody in this room, especially our current and aspiring fathers. You know, are you the type of man who is available to your kids? Are you available to them when they need you? And even if they don't need you, do they know you will be available to them when they do need you? That's the bullseye, I think, for when our kids are grown men and, and, and women, that they know they might not always need us, but they know when they do that our character, our holiness, and our intimacy with them provides an availability for them. Is that who we are? Is our availability for them revealing the kind of access God wants us to have with, God wants them to have with him? And know that no matter where you find yourself in all of these categories, there is much grace from God. So you see, there are many facets to God's fatherhood in the Bible, and we've looked at a few today. But three of the clearest are that he is totally trustworthy and reliable because he's holy. While God is tough as nails and not to be trifled with, he can smote, you know, the Old Testament idea. Um, he is also intimate. He can own the earth, but then inhabit it with us. He knows how to speak um, to us. That's, that's incredibly wonderful that he is available to us at all times. And God wants that, that realized understanding of who he is to us to be poured out in the most meaningful and significant relationships we have in our lives of which today we highlight what it means to be dad, Abba, Father. And that's why Jesus wanted to spend time with his father. He didn't have to, he genuinely wanted to, and his father with him. So as we close, let me say this. When it comes to fathering, our heavenly father is perfect, but we are not. And there's a great peace in recognizing that. 
And we are bound to make mistakes as fathers. But even in that, we can learn something from God. When we do err, he is faithful to forgive. He is faithful to shepherd our hearts back to him. And so I want to say this with an exuberant amount of confidence and peace. I want to give you peace today, as well as myself. Um, If you've come to the recognition, the realization this morning, that you have some or maybe even a lot of room to grow as a dad, I want to welcome you to the club. Because if we're being honest, every one of us, whenever we are asked the question, can we grow as fathers, the answer should always be yes. Because we always have room and space to grow into the image of God. And so in the reality of what sanctification is, we will never be perfect fathers. But we have the unique ability to grow in our love and care and intimacy for God and experience it from Him and show it to others. So with that in mind, I want you this morning, as we move into our contemplation time, our response time, to respond to your Father in Heaven. Ask Him for the grace and strength you need to become, no matter where you are on the spectrum, the kind of Father to your family, to the people in your life, that He is to you. And as we wrap, ask yourself this. What is Jesus saying to you about the role of fatherhood in your life, the role of relationship in your life if you're not a dad? And what is it that you are going to do about it as you move into this week and think about it in your own life? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your son. Thank you for you. And thank you again for the humanity of our faith, the the reality of what it means, God, for you to be father. It is not some high-ended philosophical concept that we read about in a textbook. We do read about it, but the end game of what we read is meant to be experienced on the local level, in our hearts and in the relationships that matter most. So I thank you again for the clear revelation of who you are to us and what it means, God, um, for, for who we are to others. I pray today that you would marry heart and mind in every single person in this room and in my own and help us, God, to leave this place more in love, more infatuated with the fatherhood you display to us. And may that define our every relationship in life. May we in every single contact you give us Point people to the image of who you are. May we truly be conduits for your grace, your good, and your glory. And may the people who are in our lives when we are no longer here, I pray, God, that the end of our stories when we are on our deathbeds would be that people say, I am thankful for your life, for the deposit you made in me because of the complete and the, the, the genuine understanding of Father, who you are to us. And it is in the name of our Father we pray this morning. Amen.